0: G'day, welcome to the Noobsparrow podcast. Oh, I'm excited about today's episode. It is X Mouth, uh, a guide from Troppy over there who lives there in Exmouth, and he t- actually takes people out, humpback diving and all sorts of ecotourism stuff. He's a mad keen uh, sparrow with a background in uh, marine science. So he's an educated man, and this is a fantastic free-range chat uh, all about sort of spearfishing in his area of the world. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a little while coming, and uh, appreciated him bearing with me. I had some tech issues before this interview as well. so um, But he's a top man, and it was a bloody good chat. Before we get there, a couple of quick shout-outs now. In today's show notes, if you go to noobsperra.com forward slash troppy, I'm going to link up a couple of things. There's a free book that comes with this episode written by Troppy about spearfishing in Exmouth. Um, there's a whole lot of good information in there uh, for anyone that's le- learning spearfishing, like just in their very early days. Uh, it's free, and he's just a bloody champion. It's a great little guide, 30 pages, but there's a ton of information in there, and I'd encourage you to check it out. So, noobsperra.com forward slash troppy. But one of the other things I'm going to link up today is a A bit of a summary from Alex Hamilton, who listened to the Simon Tripp interview, the recent interview where we talked about the Hawkesbury marine parks uh, sort of issue. And he's given me a whole lot more background information. I can't cover it all in this episode, uh, but I'm going to link it up in today's show notes. If you head there, I'll have a bit of a summary uh, in today's show notes. So check that out. Thanks, Alex Hamilton from the sea lions down there in the Central Coast for sending that through to me. Uh, I got some great fan mail. Stuart, he says, hey, guys, first of all, congrats on the site and all the info it contains. I'd love to have this info at my fingertips when I was just starting out. I was lucky enough to hook up with North Shore Seahawks and got to learn... Of Ted and Judge and the other boys, it was awesome. He says, "I'm a 40-year-old sparrow that's only just got back into the water after 16 odd year break due to all the usual stuff, but diving as often as possible for about a year again, and I'm so bloody obsessed again. It's awesome." So he's up in Harvey Bay. He's talking about starting a club up there again. So awesome, Stu. Thanks for that. Great fan mail, mate. Also. Uh, quick interview, a quick review of 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. It's up there on Amazon in a paperback format which I'd encourage you to buy because it's got all the pictures and the mad editing by Sky Bailey from Spearing Magazine and uh, it's a cool little piece that Turbo and I put a fair bit of work into. Um, Today's interview with Choppy reminded me of that but this review says from Justin Lean, he says, I must have... A great piece of work by Shrek and Turbo. This book serves as a great epitaph to their awesome podcast. I have both the ebook and audio version A Treasure Trove of Experience on my spearfishing journey. Um, I think an epitaph is like something that you put up when someone dies. But uh <laughs> <laughs> we're not dead, Justin. Um, turbo's not having much to do with the show at the moment. However, we're not dead. We're very much alive and kicking. But thanks for the review, brother. That was pretty cool. Um, look, let's get into today's interview with Tropi. Um, Get into some science and some cool stuff. Talking about ocean currents, ocean temps, how it affects fish. We talk about fecundity and reproductive rates, fun marine science stuff. Um, I ask bad questions as usual, but Troppy does his best to make the interview smooth and work so let's hook in Adreno Spearfishing are today's proud sponsor of the Noob Spearow podcast they stock a huge range of equipment that you can find in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and now Perth that's right spearfishing.com.au have got a huge range of gear I encourage you to get along use the code Noob Spiro, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O and save yourself $20 on every purchase over 200 when you shop online. Welcome to the show, Michael Troppi, Troppiano from, from Exmouth. Well, you're not from there originally, but yeah, that's where you hail from now. You've written a bloody cracker guide to spearfishing in uh, the Exmouth area, and you even sort of... You borrowed some language from, from us, and then you thought, oh, there's some guys already called Noob Spear, so i better reach out and check to make sure it's all right. So thanks for the, um, thanks for the heads up, and well done on creating a bloody good guide to spearfishing in X-Mouth.
1: Cheers, Shrek. Great to meet you. Yeah, love, love what you guys do. And, yeah, originally kind of got into you when I was just beginning spearing, and that's kind of the background to why this guide was made, because this is probably... Oh. Yeah, one of the most complex places in the world to spear but it's like a really really special location as well so i just kind of wanted to make sure that uh, if you know guys are getting into it up here they can do it in a way where they know they're kind of following following the rules because i always always tell people with my background is like marine biology fisheries management i spearfished my whole life and i still find it hard to work out the rules up here so if you're coming up here for a weekend of spearing, it's like
0: almost impossible. So, hence the reason for the guide. Um, it's 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 free, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I just made. I was just like when I got up here, I moved in with a few girls who had never really gone into spearing, and they actually kind of, you know, saw spearing in quite a negative light. They were quite green-minded um, and weren't really aware of all the good sides of spearing and the sides I see as like all the special aspects. The culture around spearfishing and the sustainability of the way we extract fish and Mm. how it's so selective. And the more they kind of saw what I did and bought into it, they all wanted to give it a go, which was fantastic. But Mm. exactly with the complexity of rules and stuff, they were just kind of, when they wanted to go out and do it on their own, it was a real challenge to spearfish in a way that they could, you know, support all the things they love about this World Heritage reef system we live on and then yeah. also go out and
0: take take home a fish. It's a special part of the world, and I just wanted to dig in briefly to this idea of... Isn't it funny how, you know, like... The green the green handle has got such a negative connotation for spear fishermen hunters and conservationists because of some of the, the I think the poor understanding of what it, what it is exactly that we do in the environment and how how spearfishing and hunting and things like this can be approached from a real conservation sort of mindset Um you do live in a really unique part of the world. Um, so you mentioned the fisheries management cha- uh, challenges, but the biodiversity over there is second to none in the world. Um, just give us a little bit of an overview of um, sort of what's going on over there and, and
1: and you know, your, your
0: challenges with Spear in there.
1: Okay, so the in terms of what makes this place special, we have a fringing reef here, which is one of the biggest coral reefs in the world. It's almost 300 kilometres a reef. Yep. And it's accessible from shore, so there's places you can swim out from shore to the back of the reef and be targeting big pelagics. So, mackies, I haven't got one, but I know there's wahoo that come right in close there, and all those amazing fish. But the thing that makes it really special as well is when you're out there, you potentially have stuff like whale sharks, humpback whales, dugons, manta rays, turtles. I've even, from a boat, been out there one day and seen the biggest animal to ever been on planet Earth, the blue whale out there. So, oh, wow. All these, yeah, all these gnarly Full creatures. Size. Yeah, yeah, oh, it man. was massive. So, holy there's holy. like all these gnarly creatures that you never expect to see in your lifetime, which in a day, spearing from the shore, you can potentially swim with. So, holy shit, that's a crazy. Really special spot. Um, yeah. And then we've got. Yeah, the coral reef itself is in, in really good health. Because it's so isolated here, there's been no development along the coastline, so there's no, none of the Ocean. same issues that the Great Barrier Reef has or anything. Yeah, exactly. No runoff from farming or agriculture, no mm. extra nutrients in the water. And so the, I think there's about 250 species of hard and soft corals here and almost 500 species of fish. And generally speaking, it's all in really good nick.
0: Mm, awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. So like before the show, we were chatting a little bit about your background. So you you, you studied marine science. I mean, let's start there. Um, where did you study it and what was that like?
1: So I studied in the University of West Australia in Perth, which is pretty much where I grew up in the southwest. Yeah, it was fascinating. I, a lot of guys always ask me, why did you get into marine science? It's pretty challenging for the job opportunities. Yeah. And I am... Um, I did. I would always wanted to work in the area, and I did end up up working in the field for a number of years. But for me, I was just, um, yeah, I was just always fascinated by learning more about it. And it was um, originally like just as a lionfish, I was a kid. You just start out, well, I just started out fishing a bit. And then as you want to catch more, you start thinking about, you know, why the fish there on a certain day and they weren't the other day. What are the other fish in the system doing? And then you really quickly start thinking like an ecologist. And I've found going through university actually that like the good spear fishermen and the good fishermen that I've worked with at university and outside as scientists, yep. I find are like two or three steps ahead of the game when it comes to fisheries stuff in science yep. because they already have had to think from a young age critically about what fish are doing and why they're doing yeah. it.
0: As part of that, as part of that ecosystem, and then and the the, nat- the natural inquisitive minds, um, which is part of what makes line fishing and spearfishing such a joy. It's because fish are just difficult to nut out, and you think you got a handle on it, and boom, you you don't. But uh, like combining that with a in the field of science as well, that'd be that'd be really cool because you learn some some. Um, you know, some technical ways in which to sort of analyse data and um, draw conclusions from it and use your intuition and your intuitive feel from fishing as well. So for me, it's kind of fascinating as well. I think a lot of sparrows are probably the same as you, so I'm almost a bit envious. So, But anyway, carry on. I was enjoying listening to that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, nah, I basically found – so I ended up working in um, fisheries management um, with the WA uh, Recreational Fishing Peak Body over here. it's yeah. called cool. yeah. Fish West, and then I did some stuff with a uh, Australian fishing conservation group called Ozfish Unlimited that were doing fish habitat restoration stuff with fishermen. And okay. um, yeah, like, like you were just saying, what I've pretty much found through that stuff is that fishermen and um, spearfishermen generally have a really good grasp of all these concepts. And pretty much everything I learned at university, I kind of knew, but I just didn't know the technical word for it. Yeah. So yeah. it's been really amazing now having Having the knowledge I had before and now knowing the technical terms is that when I worked in that role, to be yeah. able to go to like fishermen who are an expert in an area and be able to get that information out of them because you know what questions to ask. Because yeah. Yeah. there's a yeah. Huge, yeah, huge amount of information. A lot of scientists really don't realize that they've got all that information and yeah. have that knowledge because they don't know how to display it. You know, to them, they're saying like, oh, we'll catch a fish. Yeah, we're going to go out and catch this kind of fish on this day and they can go and get it exactly. And they could tell you why it's going to be there, but um, then a scientist can interpret that a little bit more and get a heap of really good stuff out of it.
0: Yeah, okay. So what, what, are, some of, what are some of the key takeaways that you took from it that maybe other um, sparrows that don't have a science background could, could learn from or, or could, um, could try and invest some time studying themselves like um, to give themselves a bit more of a, a technical foundation with some of the, the, the maybe the intuitive things that they already know?
1: yeah i think um just that's it follow up on your intuition a bit so some of the stuff i mean a lot of the really hardcore guys are onto it already uh yeah. for example some of the game fishermen that you know understand what currents do and then mm. there's actually a lot of information online about live readings on ocean temperature and ocean currents that you can get from a lot of places around the world and they can get it around australia And so if you are going to go out, for example, targeting pelagic fish, you can be from your computer checking that every day using your understanding of um, that those fish feed best in a strong current or in the warm water and then using the scientific models that people have created and realising that that resource is available online to time your hunts offshore to maximise your chances. So just really decreasing the... Uh, stab in the dark aspect of, of some of those things. And a little bit too for reef fishing, again, it's, it's stuff we already kind of know. I kind of think of it when I go spearfishing, particularly for some of the fish up here, really thinking about their diet is a big one for me. And so depending on your level of experience, knowledge of each fish, good place to start out for working out a fish's diet before you look at its guts is firstly maybe its teeth so obviously if they've well not obviously but if they've got really flat teeth they're more likely to be crunching if they're reef fish urchins crabs and stuff like that yeah and if they've got those sharp teeth like mackies then they're more likely to be chomping mm-hmm. down fish and cutting stuff up and then if you can catch that species and look at its guts and see what it's been eating that really, if you piece together a little bits of information like that, that gives you a really good idea about where the fish will be at certain times. So, for example, um, a really popular fish I like to target here, the Spangled Emperor. They actually, it's hard to believe, but uh, smash down a lot of the urchins here. Yeah, like the big pinkies and stuff too around the place. But um, a lot of guys like wouldn't believe it when you tell them because the urchins obviously so spiky and they're not – don't quite have that big, so strong, aggressive mouth as some of the snappers and um, mm. tusk fish and stuff like that. But having uh, caught a few with uh, urchin spikes in their tongue and uh, urchin spikes in their guts when you when you fill them, yeah, um, it's really changed the way I hunt. I spend a lot more time now hunting around flat rocky beds that really don't look so productive. But I find that if I go there and find a patch of urchins and you do a little, a little bit of urchin chumming, it's really quickly that the fish will come straight in. They're, they're really flighty fish. So, the big spangled emperor, you pretty much like pink snapper, they're there, but you won't necessarily see them. You mm. catch them line fishing, but in the water, they'll really keep their distance. So, using that, I've been able to get a lot closer to a lot bigger fish.
0: Now, that's a really cool one you got onto. Have you or have you come across any um, direct observed? Um, predation on the sea urchin by the um, spangled echren uh, emperor, and the reason I ask is because uh, are they maybe a secondary feeder? So another fish or another species like a like a cray crack the sea urchin open, and then they are like opportunistic and they swoop in because that could be an explanation for why they all approach sparrows when you chuck sand and you're a bit concealed in that.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. No, I've never I've never seen it, and that's a that's a great call. I've seen the closest I've seen, as I said, I've seen the the pricks in their tongue of the yeah. urchins but that definitely could be from something else smashing it up and the big the big dog on the reef that definitely has the power to crush them up is the big bluebones. Okay. So, um, they definitely cruise around and they've got that big powerful jaw with a little strong yeah. like teeth and it's not, wouldn't be surprising at all to picture one of them doing it. Like you said, potentially they're following them around and you know, if you're a spiro making a bit of dust and stuff, they think they're going to get a chance to an easy feed. Guys, head over to vimeo.com. Check
0: out the How to Spearfish video series by Luke Potts. There's nearly four hours of video training there, and they're divided into five different videos so far to help you take on the areas of difficulty that you might have. Now there's a beginner's guide to spearfishing gear. There's a guide to how to increase your breath hold for spearfishing. There's techniques for spearfishing yellowtail kingfish which also doubles as a guide to hunting pelagic fish. There's a a guide techniques for spearfishing snapper which is a really good um, helpful guide for approaching canny reef fish which is a tough one. And finally a guide to spearfishing around sharks. If you want to buy any of these videos, use the code noobsspero and save a bit of cash. Check it out, Vimeo on demand, how to spearfish. So with um, ocean temps and that, um, you've got some predominant currents that run down your side of Australia though it's a little bit different than this side of the coast. Um, what are the currents and um, what are some sort of
1: interesting seasonal things that you've observed? So the significant current in the whole west coast of Australia is the Lewin current. Yep. And it's a warm water current that comes through from Indonesia. So... There's a current in Indonesia called Indonesian Throughflow, yep. which pumps down the west coast and actually goes just round into the Great Australian Bight, where it breaks up a bit. Yep. So uh, it means if you're offshore somewhere in West Australia, you can get tropical pelagics all the way down into the southwest. There's even some marlin fishing for guys off Perth in the southwest. They've got to drive out a fair bit to get into them. Yeah. But... In Exmouth here in West Australia, it's the closest point in the whole coastline. It comes in so. Oh wow! That means, yeah, we get year-round warm water, which is really yeah. good. Uh, the current itself is—it's actually a downwelling current, and it's a—it's a warm water current, but it's so it's got really clear water, but it doesn't really have much nutrients in it. Okay. It doesn't support a huge volume of fish, so unlike some of the fisheries in like. South America, South Africa, where there's those cold water, big rich. upwelling currents. Yeah, they're nutrient yeah. rich. They've got massive fisheries off the back of them. Yeah, West Australia has awesome fishing and awesome spear fishing, but yeah. not the volume of some other areas. So and that's reflected in like the commercial fisheries. There's some really high value fisheries and really awesome spear fishing to be done, but yeah, just not the volume. So we don't have. Massive, massive schools of endless anchovies and stuff, but yeah. really good quality fish. In Exmouth, I've found this year actually really interestingly uh, a funny indication of when the current's really pumping, um, yeah. you start getting plastic with Indonesian riding uh, starting oh, to turn man. up out there. So it's uh, it's a bit of a sad tale, but it was a really interesting one, again, piecing together some of the stuff I started at uni about the Indonesian through flow and the Lewin current and the way it all connects. and um, Yeah, I just remember a few weeks ago actually, uh, we just had this big pump of warm water. The whole reef like went crystal clear for a few days. You could feel it and you could see thermoclines so you know when the water's like kind of a bit hazy, you should get in estuarine systems quite a bit, um, that temperature and salinity difference. We had that like at the back, at the back in the ocean this warm water was kind of pumping in close to the reef and then um, little bits of kind of endoplastic started turning up so um, yeah, it was was sad to see but it was a bit of an indicator that uh, some good water was coming in and we did get a good run of pelagic fishing off the back of that with people getting some good tuna and mackies and stuff riding close.
0: People don't realise how much with the, like, just as an aside with plastic and pollution and stuff, sparrows are starting to get a bit more involved with it, um, which is great to see. But there's big parts of, um, and I'm not you know, racially stereotyping or anything like that, but I lived in China for a year and their awareness and the culture around litter and waste and plastic, it's just, it's not the same as it is in Western countries, you know, like, they um, they don't have the mindset, the budgets haven't been spent in terms of, like, educating people. Like, when I was brought up in New Zealand, you know, like, Every single kid is brought up with this this clean, green idea that we all share it and it's pristine and we want to try and keep it that way. And, um, you know, if you, if you walk through national parks when you're young, it gives you an appreciation for that sort of stuff. And some of these other countries don't have it. And so it's a kind of a, it is a little bit of a cultural phenomenon as much as anything. Now, while, while you were studying your marine science, did you have a look at any of the new innovation that's been coming out? Like um, these guys that have got the machines that are kind of um, gathering
1: plastic and stuff like that? Yeah, I've, been, I've seen a bit of that stuff and it's all, it's all so exciting um, when guys start coming out with developments. But uh, yeah. it's one really interesting thing I've found as well that uh, living in a, a tourism town where you get guys from all different cultures is that you do see some people from areas that are definitely less, less onto it, like you were saying. Yeah. But it also is a really interesting perspective, particularly some of the like, northern European nations that are kind of leagues ahead of us on stuff. They kind of uh, almost make you embarrassed about some of the ways they talk about how they sell to recycling and reusing stuff. Yeah, right. Like, we're really proud of what we do here and that we're world leaders, but then some of the guys, when they talk to you, they're like, kind of makes you embarrassed about um, that we are definitely lagging behind in a lot of ways and stuff like that.
0: There's, there's people in our in our own backyard we're lagging behind too like I, I picked out Asia but it's not all of Asia like Singapore I think is a much further ahead and almost like one of those um, Western European countries in terms of innovation and the amount of they're pouring into it because they live on such a small island they've developed their own rigorous ways of um, dealing with waste as well and you know so um, yeah have you picked up a few things from them um, what what, uh, what what sort of attitudes have you come across like
1: I right. One really interesting thing is that, um, oh, they always just talk about how well they're good at recycling. I think they've got like six or seven bins at each house, like where they separate each little thing, which would be a fantastic thing. But I think in West Australia, and Australia has been so hard because everything's so so isolated and the... I guess it's just a cost and economics thing still that it's just not
0: w- WA particularly. You guys are pretty isolated, you know. Like you got Perth, you got Perth over there, but it's just so like geographically um, spread out. It's yeah,
1: it's a, it's a task. It's one thing actually. Shrek was talking about some of the guys who were a bit green. I was talking to when I first got up here, spearing, and they mm. were like really really off me when I was talking about spearing. And then I, it's like. A little interesting story to think about how they got their lunch compared to how i got my lunch for example so if i went out and swam around for you know many kilometers saw thousands of fish and picked out my one fish for lunch that was my impact on the world for the day yeah, yeah. if their lunch was a, a, a rocket rocket and spinach salad it was like a farm that was cleared somewhere which once had this beautiful biodiversity and then it was Shipped into Perth and packaged there, and then trucked all out the coastline, and probably hit hit a few roos along the way. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> stored, in a, stored in an open cold refrigerator in IGA, then they've taken it back to their fridge. So it's it's really once you start breaking it down, it's really hard to argue against the environmental impacts of spearing compared to other ways to source your protein. If it's if it's done correctly, of course. There's obviously guys in all different. Forms a community to do uh, different things. But yeah if, it's, yeah, if it's done right, it's fantastic.
0: It's so one of my um, things of the Hawkesbury plan that they had over here. I don't know if you know much about it, but you probably do. You probably know far more than me even. But um, you know, like one of the things that annoyed me was is like, why do we why are we trying to lock people out of a of a of a quite a a well managed fishery that's already there? Like because I think when people are in touch with their food and even in small ways, like and it's not, you know, eighteen steps removed from their plate, it makes them much more aware of the process and I think we we place higher value on what it is we're putting into ourselves. And, um, I mean, I joke around about how much I love fish, but I love the whole process. I mean, it's exhausting. Like, you know, if you get up early in the morning, you go out all day, and then you've got to clean all your gear, clean all the fish, you fill it them, then you've still got to cook them and prepare them. And, you know, there's a whole lot of work, but there's a real joy in it. And um, I think staying connected like that, it lends you some some gratitude, I think, and, um, and, a, and a bit more educated perspective, I think, on just just on on, um, where it comes from.
1: 100%. And I think one thing putting this guide together I really wanted to try and get across is all those aspects because it is still a developing sport, spearfishing, and I think, like you said at the start, it's got negative connotations in some sectors of the community, particularly people who are put in their minds, think they're relatively green-minded, but it fits so well, particularly uh, in the town of Exmouth where I'm living now where everyone's so connected to the environment and everyone's come up here because they love the coral reef for some reason. Yep. And yeah, some connection or another, they like coming for the reef. It's a really close-knit community and spearfishing to me captures all those things really well and brings it all together. So it's something that uh, you know should be part of a positive, a positive view of the community and the you know, lack of information around it just makes it even even harder. I think it like should be something we as really accessible information and talked about really well, so people can get around it and yeah, build a positive positive culture around it.
0: Hey, I like the introduction to your guide. It says, <clears throat> and I quote. <laughs> So you've got to X-mouth surfed June 16,723 times, brunched at so-so and spent your last hard-earned dollar on a craft beer, wondering what wondering what you're going to do, wondering what you're going to eat tomorrow. You, my friend, are ready to try something new. And then you break into this guide, and it's quite comprehensive. So you give it like a, a one-paragraph history, which I like because... I. <laughs> I don't want to read much more history than that. I'm going to be honest, especially when I'm starting something. Um, but the sustainability, like um, particularly in your part of the world, what what species um, are vulnerable? And do like if you're taking people out because you, you you work in tourism over there, which we'll get into a little bit more hopefully. Um, you know, when you're when you're teaching these people, what are some of the the core principles you teach uh, to them in order to stay sustainable and and not maybe. Um, predate upon vulnerable species.
1: Yeah, the um, we're pretty lucky in West Australia. I think it is relatively well managed and there's a number of rules that make it extremely complex to go fishing here, but uh, they're there for a reason, which is to protect the fish stocks. So as long as you fish within those rules, technically it should be a sustainable act, which is really good. You can go out knowing you, you can keep doing it. But for guys that really do want to make sure they're having the the best impact and um, making sure they're having the least impact on the reef. Um, Some of the things I always talk about are first uh, understanding a fish's life history traits, so how fast does it grow, how long does it live, how fecund is it, so how much reproduction does it do, how much eggs does it reproduce, those kinds of things. So generally um, pelagic fishes are generally speaking faster growing and reproduce at an earlier age and are therefore less susceptible to fishing pressure. So um, for example obviously dolphin fish are famously known for being one of the fastest growing fish in the world. Mm. Um, reproduce I can't actually remember but it's after only a few years that they're, they're reproducing if not sooner whereas if you compare that to something like cod or something yeah which you know lives lives for a really long time and might not reproduce nearly as regularly, and yeah. one of the key factors about those two species as well is their behavior in that the pelagic species, because they move around so much and cover such a big area, they are really hard to overfish because even if you get on a really hot bite and work them out, they still might not be there the next day, yeah, whereas um, some of the reef species, which are fantastic to hunt and I, I definitely still hunt and Take them time to time, and they're delicious eating. But they're definitely a lot more susceptible, largely because of their behaviour and the things that things that make them um, so so good on the reef and such a successful predator is their big dominant behaviour and the way they kind of take hold and own like one little patch of reef. Yeah. So they might have their one bomby that's their home, which means that if you work out how to target them, um, they can be really really easily extracted, and they, they'll come out and say good day to you, big trout and stuff like that. But but it means if you're going out every day and doing that, uh, you can really quickly take them all out of an area and it'll take quite a long time for them to restock. So just knowing those basic uh, behaviours of two kind of different species, some of those longer-living reef species to some of those pelagic species, um, Mm. can really have a really big impact in um, making sure you can go out every day and there'll be loads of fish out there.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, Like, do you know much about the coral trout specifically? Is it like was that one of the species you sort of had a good look at or
1: yeah i don't off the top of my head i can't remember oh. too much of their life history traits but it is a really probably the number one target in mm. um in exmouth and we've got in west australia a size limit of 45 centimeters and yeah uh, the idea of the size limits i think in most places but here at least is that um
0: let them get through a breeding cycle
1: yeah exactly by the time they've Reach that stage, I think it's Mm. uh, the scientists use a model where at least fifty percent of the population should have had at least one chance to breed. But one one really interesting thing with all, I'm pretty sure it's pretty much all fish around the world is that they become more um, fecund with age and size. Yeah, yeah, opposite to us as humans, you know, as we get older, uh, we might (laughs) not be as effective in the bedroom as we once were. (laughs) <laughs> mucking around at the uni bar but yeah. a fish as it gets bigger and older it'll produce way way more eggs and those eggs are way more likely to produce viable offspring so a big fish in a population is significantly more valuable than a little fish so it's again really interesting sometimes going out and taking um a really big valuable uh trophy fish yeah. which of course is still um Within the rules, acceptable to do, and can be a fantastic thing to do time to time. But in terms of the impact it has on the fishery, sometimes it's uh, if that was your aim to have the least impact, it might be better to take you know um, a couple of reasonable sized fish if you had if you had the option, for example.
0: Yeah, I saw that. I saw. I don't know if you've seen the same study as me, but it was done up in. Um the, the bottom of the Great Barrier Reef, I think around the bunker group, but they surveyed a number of lion fishermen and a number of spear fishermen and they sort of compared their catches. And uh, um, in terms of uh, catch, it was fairly even. Um, however, the size of the spear fishermen's catch was, um, I think, like an order of like maybe 20 to 30% on average larger across the board. Um, so that is something we possibly need to be aware of. I was going to say with coral trout, like um, when I when I go up north and I love targeting them, well, I love eating them, uh, they're not particularly challenging at times, but it doesn't stop me from plugging the hell out of them. Um, but like you'll go to maybe two reef or three reef systems and go to bommie after bommie and, the, and there's not a lot there and then all of a sudden you get on one bommie and there's it seems like there's 20 fish on there and um, you know you can more or less catch your limit in, on one bommie. But I don't know if that's a good practice or not. Um, so that was kind of why I was asking if you knew much about them in particular.
1: Yeah, one thing I'm still trying to work out up here, because most of my spearfishing has been down in the southwest, of West Australia. So It's only been yeah. the last year and a half I've been spearing up here. We've got – we had 12-meter tides up there. Oh, so wow. it was incredible. And I, I've never fished anything like it, but yeah. it made the fishing extremely – at the best times, like better than anything I'd ever seen in the world. But yeah, at the right. worst times, it doesn't matter how good a fisherman you are, you couldn't couldn't get couldn't tempt a fish. Like the fishing was just really driven by that tidal pattern and the fish moved around a hell of a lot. And particularly the Barramundi we used to target there, working them out, it was fascinating. They they cover massive areas every day. And once you understand their movements, you could catch a heap of fish. Mm. So one thing I've found like you were saying about different bommies producing different fish, one thing I've found here is some of the fish kind of like trout and even cods and bluebone, another one, which I really never thought moved around much at all. I've been spearfishing in some locations and had amazing days and caught heaps of all these species.
0: Spawning, spawning aggregations.
1: <laughs> nah, not quite that many, but you know, I had really solid days where there were plenty of fish around. And then yeah. going back like, you know, two days a week later, and it's been really a desolate area. And you can just feel, you know, when you're a spirit in the water, you can feel when it's not on. Like there's just yeah. uh, yep. not a lot of. And I'd love to know guys have speared up here a lot more, of their thoughts But I'm starting to think that um, they probably move around a fair bit uh, where their food moves around too. Hey newbers! it's uh, Jeremy here from Spearing Magazine with
0: an, uh, with an update for you guys. Shrek and Turbo have been doing such a great job with uh, telling guys about Spearing Magazine that we've actually sold out of most of our back issues and catalogs. But uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that uh, we have an international subscription available just for you guys. Yeah, from Spearing Magazine, I'm Jeremy Campbell. Thank you, guys. Go to spearingmagazine.com. Check out the uh, international subscription. Aw, yeah. log an actual logbook for spearfishing. Yes, it's a paper form, and perhaps we could go digital in the future, But at the moment Spirolog is available right now on Amazon.com to capture your dives and help you replicate past results. Because if you're capturing that fish in those specific conditions and it doesn't happen every week, there's probably some unique variables that are allowing that phenomenon to take place. So record them in your dive log. You can go back, you can have a look at data over time and you can see what works, what makes your spots and locations tick. Get SpiroLog on Amazon.com today. Spirolog. By Noob Spiro. Oh my god. A a lot of guys talk about and I, I don't have any evidence to support this, but you know, it's like you say, you go out some days and the water's clean, it's beautiful, but the, the fish just are not there. And a lot of guys seem to think that some of these um, resident reef species and stuff, they they tend to head out to deeper water and then come back in at certain times. And it's hard to understand those movements. Have you seen um, or looked into any evidence, like, with regards to, like, hitting deeper or coming shallower when they're feeding or breeding or, um, you know, I I don't even really know much about it, to be honest.
1: Now, I know a bit about some of the emperors in uh, Ningaloo here. So there's been some tagging studies and from what I've seen off the back of that, my fishing, which are based around it, a lot of the emperors do make daily movements in and out of shallow and deep water that both follow tides and light. So... Some of the emperors seem to come in right close from kind of out the back of the reef, right into the shallows at night time to feed. And Mm. particularly as there's higher water because they do eat on those crabs and stuff. As the higher water picks up, they can get right into the shallows um, and particularly at night they'll come in there. So I know those guys move around a fair bit. But my – I don't really know about the cod and coral trout on it, but my take on it has been from the times when it's been in the water at Spots and it's been alive, and Mm. the times – of when it hasn't been, my reading on that is that the fish are generally still there, but they're not out actively feeding. And because they, of course, know you're there miles before you can find them, mm. uh, they're not showing themselves. They're not coming out of the reef. They go into the very back of holes and caves. So, And you, you see trout, even like big bluebone and stuff when you're spearing on reefs, get mm. into the tiniest cracks and you just can't believe they get in there. So there's all <laughs> these little cracks in the reef system yeah. where – my take on it is that when it's not on, when the action's not firing, they're all holding up in there. So you might get lucky and pick a fish out through a crack or something, but it's much you more it. effective to work out when the fish are feeding and they'll be out and about and they'll come check you out if you're stirring up making noise because they're looking for a feed.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those arguments too for, you know, equilibrium, you know, like, um, you know, the, nature has its own way of correcting imbalances of, you know, you know there are points where you can abuse it past the point of recovery however you know the ability for fish to adopt behavior to avoid threats and predation uh, you know like it's the these ecosystems have existed for thousands of years you know like um, one spear fisherman or even a group of spear fishermen can make a, a an impact on the environment however they're, you know, these these fish have these inbuilt mechanisms in order to survive and, you know, re- regenerate their numbers and stuff. Um, it, it, I think it's a, a strong argument for it. Oh,
1: yeah. My um, uh, guy I used to work with actually studied underneath him at university, he did an amazing study in uh, one of the island nations north of Australia looking at how the fish change their behaviour based on spearfishing out there. Yeah. In this area, the guys use a conservation method called tambour areas where they completely lock off an area to any form of fishing uh, and then open it up as needed. So potentially if there's a wedding or a funeral or something where they need to source some fish, they'll open it up, flog the hell out of it for a week (laughs) and catch everything there. And so what his study did, he looked at minimum approach distance. So they would swim up to a fish and the second it darted away, they would drop a rock and swim over to where the fish did out of the way and measure that distance. And so that was like kind of how friendly the fish were and how impacted they were by human behavior. And yeah. so they looked at that after they closed the sanctuary to, and then how it changed when they reopened it. And what they found was that um, when they closed the sanctuary, originally they couldn't get anywhere near these fish. And it took a long, long time for these fish to let them get close. You know, It was like a period of weeks, even months before the fish would uh, trust humans again essentially. Yeah. Let us get close. They're not all like Finding Dory, in other words. No, no, no. They, they were onto it. They took so long. And then once they yeah. finally built up trust, once they opened those tambour areas, it took yeah. one fishing session and none of the fish trusted anyone again. Straight away, all the fish were wise to it and yeah. minimum approach distance went right out back to what it was months ago. So, yeah, like yeah. you said, they, they're smart. They take a long time to gain your trust and the second they they realise you're onto them, they, uh, they, they know you're a threat. So, pretty and, much... And, Areas
0: of spearing, the fish be on here. I've read a similar study done in the med. Uh, it was they called it flight distance or something like that. But um, you know, but this is one of those things as a spear fisherman, you you often already understand because if you go to the spots that are hammered by people week in week out, you're going to have to be really really onto it. And spearing is super challenging in those areas. Whereas if you're going out to spots where that you've discovered yourself and the fish don't have that um, exposure to human activity, they're much more vulnerable to us. And it's, it's, sometimes it's fun, but sometimes it's fun to go hunting where they are predated upon because you really have to adapt some skills to be able to even bloody get onto them.
1: Classic example of like, spiro's knowing this stuff that scientists take years to study, but not well, knowing how to verbalise it. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't get found out until someone spends thousands of dollars doing a study in international waters on it
0: yeah
1: well one of the other things
0: I think is sometimes you get this arrogance from from scientists not all the time I'm not bagging all scientists or whatever but like you know I've, I've heard the argument say that no fish have a very short-term memory and there's no ability or, or, or proof for them to be able to um, make conscious um you know, choices or whatever about their action. I, I don't understand how they do it, do you know what I mean, in terms of whether it's a, some sort of subconscious um, response that's, you know, just um, driven into them at a biological level. I don't really know. But what I know is is that it, it works. And um, so, but, yeah, like, you confront attitudes of ignorance, I think, on both sides of that. Um, so it's a, pretty, it's a pretty interesting place to be in. It's just right, it's good to chat with you, I think, because you've got that background. So... You, Coming out of marine science, you decided to move into tourism. Tell us a little bit about what prompted that.
1: Uh, it was kind of always what made me interested uh, and part of why I wanted to study it was into tourism because it was always sharing that experience with people that got me excited. So, you know, when you take a mate out fishing or spearing and he kind of... Um, <laughs> I was actually a mate asking me to go spearing tomorrow. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. look, we can pause it and you can take that call. That's an important one.
1: No, no, you said weather's not looking good, potential Uh. mission tomorrow. So we'll line that up later at the pub. But, um, yeah, no, it's like that that seeing the joy of someone else, getting to see what you see and understand what you understand is always what got me excited. So uh, pipe dream as a kid, and kind of still is, I don't know the practicality of it, but, you know, is to have a, run some kind of liverboard spearing charter somewhere in the world one day once I have a better understanding of where that opportunity might be. But um, yeah. for now, being able to get on the water uh, every day and the job I have now in the Ningaloo Reef and literally show guys the way I see water through my eyes and get them to swim with some of the biggest animals in the ocean. We're swimming with the biggest shark in the world and the whale sharks here. And then it's humpback whale season now, so... We're lucky our operator has a license to swim with humpback whales, which is, was always actually a dream of mine as well, to swim with a humpback whales. So I've got to do that as a job this year. And, um, yeah, when guys come out of the water, you know, with water in their mask and it's like half of it's tears, half of it's salt water because they've I been mean, breathing through their nose, but they're that yeah. excited about that special moment. It's Yeah, it really gets, gives me a kick.
0: Yeah, me too. I've um, i I'm just with humpbacks. Like I've had two experiences that I, well, I've had two different two different types of experiences with humpbacks that are, are several times each. But one of them, I that we pulled up the boat. Uh, I think, I think the regulations are like a hundred meters away, and then um, I've pretty much got in the water and just finned my ass off over to them, and um, I haven't let them come to me in any way, shape, or form. I've just like. God, I wanted to see them, you know, and um, their attitudes and their body language to me weren't that favourable, and I actually felt nervous. Um, but then I've had another one where I was chasing like a Spanish mackerel, sort of in mid-water, and I'm following it, trying to get it to turn, you know, and come about, and um, doing that dirty trick that we do, and then um, and he's just all of a sudden just hit 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 the hit the gas and just poof, taken off, and then this whale and it's. Um, young one have come right in I'm guessing it's a mum and a young one have come right in on me like sort of four meters off and then carried on but then they have done a big circle and come right back up and just parked you know the mum's sort of like yeah yeah parked just off from me and the and the the bubbers come right in, like you know, sort of like a meter and a half away from me. and I was just like blown away. I just couldn't describe that experience to other people. Like, absolutely made my day. But do you, do you encounter that? Those two sort of different scenarios where maybe you don't let them come to you. You you, you know, you, maybe you're too eager and just sort of get the opposite response from them. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, there's well, there's it's like a really heavily regulated thing in West Australia. Yeah. So you have to have a special license if you're going to swim with humpback whales and under that there's a lot of regulations and so I won't go into the technical aspects of it but I know one thing you always get told and you see in the amazing do- nature documentaries is how smart they are so I always knew they were smart and I've got told they've got this emotional kind of intelligence and a language and all this kind of stuff but yeah. I had one moment this year when it all clicked and I had a really deep understanding of what it meant to whales and we have a orca pack that comes up from the south coast every year during carving time. So yeah. the humpback whales up here have swum 5,000 kilometres from Antarctica to have their babies up in the nice sheltered waters of the northwest because yep. it's nice and warm. So the babies can't really control their temperature as well as the mothers. So they've got nice warm water, and there's not really any big predators here, which makes it fantastic for spearing. I mean, there's lots of sharks up here, but none of the big scary ones on the south coast.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and none of, the big, none of the big predators. But the there is a family of orcas that comes up every year, uh, Braves the Heat, and they hunt the calves, which wow, okay. uh, is a truly amazing spectacle. And I've watched a couple of incredible hunts this year, and it's like full, more crazy than any David Anderborough documentary I've ever seen. Wow. And we watched one hunt for an hour and a half from the start when the orcas were herding the humpies to where they wanted to catch them. Yep. to 15 minutes of every orca having its individual role in the hunt. And basically the mum's trying to hold the baby up out of the water and the orca's aim is to get the baby off the mum's back and hold it down and drown it. And Oops. after an hour and a half of, yeah, amazing watching and oh, we we're lucky enough to have uh, John Toddy, the orca expert in the area, on the radio at the same time watching the hunt, explaining every little aspect. You've seen this family hunt thousands of times and knows every family member's behaviour. So he explained it all to us, and it was incredible. So they they did manage to make a successful kill. The orcas, and they killed the baby and they were eating it. And um, the mama was really frantically nearby, obviously very stressed out. You could hear her breathing. Uh, And then after spending the whole hunt trying to get it back, she kind of went away for a little bit. And then 10 minutes later, she came charging through all the babies and pushed up, pushed up, sorry, through the orcas and stole her baby back and had it back up on her back out of the water. Um, and at this stage, it was when it got really emotional because the calf was, was torn to shreds at that stage. It was like, it was, you know, barely visible that it was an, uh, a whale calf. And she 100% at that stage would have known it was dead. Uh, they're such smart animals, but it was purely an emotional connection that she didn't want these orca eating her calf. There was no way it was going to benefit her in terms of her future or any reproduction of the species or anything like that. You know, it was a purely emotional instinct thing then that she couldn't bear to see them eating it and her having that bleeding out beautiful little baby calf on her back that was just torn to shreds as the orcas still continued to harass her and she just wouldn't let it eat. It was like one of the most full on things and made me really understand that you know, these animals, as much as you read about it,
0: they have this kind of
1: emotional intelligence that we really only have a tiny grip on, I think.
0: Yeah. It's it's amazing to have the privilege to be present. Um, Sometimes you talk to people and they, they forget how savage nature is. You know what I mean? Like, man, like, if you spend any time out like in the water or you know in in the national parks or whatever you you get a sense like if you get to watch predators in action of how savage life is out in the in the in the wild you know and uh what a man what a privilege to be present it's a really cool story so, oh
1: yeah had um had one other very savage experience as well <laughs> this uh season up here we were um Not quite that wild, but I might be interested to a bit more spiro's because it's relevant to sharks. But we found a a bait ball, which isn't as common here, as I said, because we don't get those big numbers of bait fish. But um, it was getting pulled up by spinner sharks, which are an incredible shark that um, launch themselves out of the water and spin around. So really fantastic to watch from the boat. And uh, we decided it would be a good idea to jump in and have a look what was happening under the water. We could tell there's a lot of sharks there, a lot of bait happening. It was only in about three, four metres of water. It was pretty clear. And uh, got in and one of the most amazing things, well, I'd say this is the most amazing thing I've ever swum with, you could do a duck dive to the bottom and if you could hold your breath for one minute, you would see well over 100 sharks swim past you. There was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sharks harassing this bait. And... <laughs> It got. It would get so intense you'd have to swim out of the bait ball and catch your breath because it was just overwhelming. And you'd be you'd be in the bait and the bait would be all around you, about a meter from you, and you could roll around and follow your shape. And then the bait would just come racing up to your face, about a millimeter from your mask. Yeah. And you'd know you know his shit was about to get real, essentially. <laughs> and, and you would hear this thunderous noise, this most scary noise coming towards you, and you would just have to curl up in a ball. As a yeah. hundred sharks would just come tearing past you, and their <laughs> visibility yeah. in the bait fish was about—I don't know—about one centimetre. They could see ahead of them. Yeah. Jeez. But they're obviously not interested in you at all. They're trying to eat these bait fish, but they're yeah. just going flat out. So that would be as much of a shock as we
0: would. Do they work you like you know like um, you know like you'll see dolphins, seals, and birds all working in together, and they use you like a barrier?
1: They were just in this like mindset where they were just only knew. Those. They just had no idea we were there. It was so thick, oh. the base fish that they would just chomp, chomp, chomp just eating bayfish and they would charge towards you. And so they, they got to you <laughs> about you know about 20 centimetres away. The fish would clear and they would see you and they would all freak out. Obviously, <laughs> the first thing to do is close their mouths because they're not interested in you as food at all. And they would all try to get around you. But you end up having about, yeah, 20 sharks bumming into you left, right and centre as you're killing oh, up man. a little ball. And then it's you open your eyes. And pull out, and you uh, feel feel for yourself, yeah. and you're all good. And there was one um, <laughs> one moment I thought it it all had gone all had gone really uh, pear shaped. Is uh, yeah, one of my friends was in there. and He had a broken rib recently, yeah. oh, and i would no. completely forgotten about it. But um, we had that. We had we heard the thunderous noise, and we curled up in a ball. And as these fish, uh, as the, as the sharks came towards us, they push past, and you get a few tail slaps to the face and stuff. And I got to the surface and I could just hear the most sickening scream. Oh, this guy, I've never seen him show any pain at all, but it was just like a sickening scream of pure agony. Oh, I went over to him and he couldn't speak. He was just in pain. Yeah. And straight away, you know, your mind turns to the worst. And I looked over him and couldn't see any injuries. And as he started uh, catching his breath, I saw he was holding his ribs. And yeah, uh, yeah. straight away, what had happened? A shark had come at flat out, I don't know how fast these things are going. And not been able to turn in time and accidentally nosed straight into his broken rib. Mm. And he said it felt like Muhammad Ali had just sucker punched him right <laughs> in his broken rib. And uh, he couldn't breathe. We pretty much carried him back to the boat so he could get his breath. He couldn't swim. We couldn't breathe. And then um, it was about five minutes when he caught his breath, he was back in the water. So um, that's, a, that's a rough That's a rough part of the body. Like I've, I've
0: injured – like, I think one of the things in there, like, just coughing one year, I think. And, um, shit, it's painful when it's in your chest because you don't realise how much your, your lungs expand and stuff. And even as sparrows, like, with that, that awareness that we have of how much, your, you know, your um, ribs expand when you take a full breath, like, you just, you forget. Like, it's a vulnerable part of our bodies. We're so weak sometimes, you know, like.
1: And, um, oh, just on that too, Shrek, like, obviously with sharks, always take everything with a grain of salt and you've got to spend a long time observing activity like that and have experience in the area, understand what the sharks are doing, have clear water and be really confident uh, mm. that you're putting yourself in a safe position before you attempt to do something like that. But, uh, so yeah, that's that, that scenario we're really confident but we wouldn't go just jumping into every every feeding frenzy that we see. Um, we're just really lucky. We had a really good uh, grasp on what was going on in that one.
0: Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good addendum to that uh, little uh, story. <laughs> Maybe we needed a preface, but anyway, uh, it's all good. Hey, who who do you work for? So, and, and what is the operation? Like, you, you do you do sparing, you do snorkeling. What, what what's the sort of the, the So right sort
1: of... now, I work with a group called Ningaloo Discovery, and it's uh, eco tours they run over here. Okay. So yeah, it's a family-run business, and they run two boats out of here. And the most of the season, is based around whale shark swimming. So yeah. we get whale shark aggregations here, which are really magnificent animal to swim with. Uh, and then from time to time, we get the manta rays coming through as well. But the second half of the year, which it is right now, is humpback whale swims. So um, yeah. they are running, we're running humpback whale swim tours right now. So. We get out there and um, yeah, swim with swim with humpies for fun. And a mm. lot of the a lot of the guests are you know Ken spearos and fishermen and stuff. So I always uh, end up having a long chat to them about spearing in the area. And that was another thing that kind of prompted me to make this guide is just seeing how many guys were coming to the area for spearing. I didn't realise so many guys were into it these days. And it's uh, just it's very very hard to find information and tease it apart. And so yeah. now they've got this i haven't i've only really given it to a few mates because that was the purpose but now that i've been bumping into a few guys on the boat and they've been asking me i've been being asking them oh do you guys want to copy this and everyone i've given it to has been so stoked that they finally have a bit of a grasp on what's going on up here and can be a bit more confident and going out for a hunt i might um is it okay if i bloody attach it to today's show notes yeah, it'd be, it'd be fantastic. I don't have any way, I've been trying to work out a way to put it up somewhere so I can share it a bit easily. So, yeah, that'd be great track. Yeah, I'll, I'll just
0: have, like, for your interview page, so if people go to, uh, what are we, how are we going to do? We'll go noobspero.com forward slash troppy T-R-O-P-I, And if they go there, they can listen to the full interview there and there'll be a few of the things we linked up and chatted about today. But I'll try and attach your PDF guide because it's a bloody fantastic guide, man. You've spent a bit of time doing this. Like um, I know how much work's involved in this shit too. (laughs) You know, me and Tim have made a couple of these things now. So it's bloody good. There's a bit of safety in there. There's like practical stuff and uh, like loading your gun, basics of like knowing the size of fish underwater. There's aiming tutorial. There's how to dispatch a fish, remove the spear. There's a bit of information about sharks, and you've covered off about maybe 10 species there, and uh, probably some of the more common ones over there, and uh, you've done a bang-up job, man. Well done.
1: Oh, thanks very much. I should say as well that my good mate Cameron Barton put a lot of time into editing up, but yeah, it it did take a lot of time, and there's between uh, good days when you're spearing and rough days when you're working. It yeah. is hard to find the time, but it was just something that was just done for fun and to help help mates out, really. So it was, I really enjoyed it, and um, it was it was an easy thing to do in the end. But yeah, cheers, Shrek. Yeah, sick. No, it's um, it's just good having a yarn with you, man, and uh, plenty of good
0: information. Um, I know we've been chatting away for a little while already. Um, just wondered if you had anything else to cover off before we head off. And uh...
1: oh, I was just thinking about one thing. It's pretty, it's going back a bit, and uh, yeah. I probably should get this before, but. I think I covered in the guide, but another really interesting thing i found in terms of sustainability up here, I know you were talking about how like fish have their own way of like looking after themselves and, yeah. and being smart. And one interesting thing in Exmouth here is that in the Gulf, we actually have a very different ecosystem to the reef. So Exmouth's a peninsula and yeah. then the Gulf is kind of a more tidally kind of estuarine environment. And on the west is this beautiful tropical coral reef. And one thing I love about the Gulf is that it's really rare you get good vis days and a lot of the Gulf has uh, next to no vis, and it kind of acts as a natural protection for the fish down there, particularly the ones that are susceptible to spearfishing because you can only spearfish a number of days down there. So it's a cool a cool natural filter. And um, yeah. I'd like to just finish one final thing by saying that Xmouth Gulf uh, is kind of the nursery nursery area for the reef and – is currently a proposed site for um, some development, some industrialization uh, under sub C7. So, something a lot of the guys in the local community are really passionate about uh, having not go ahead because uh, we live in a World Heritage Area here that is com- mm. is completely, avoids any industrialization or anything like that. And we've seen around the world, a lot of areas aren't fortunate enough to have been able to stop it because it happened a long time ago. But... Now knowing what we know about how to maintain a healthy ecosystem, we've got a world-class reef system here with all the amazing things mm. I've talked about, um, and we've got a chance to to keep it that way. So there's a campaign, like Protecting Ningaloo, if anyone's interested in reading more about that.
0: All right, cool. I'll link it up in today's show notes. So again, if guys go to noobsphere.com forward slash choppy, they can um, find out links to that. Maybe the, if there's a petition or something going, is that included in there as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. Protecting Glue has all the best ways. Uh, You can uh, support it if you'd like to, and there's a petition you can sign up there.
0: Cool. So if guys are interested in spearing Exmouth region, um, I'm going to link up this PDF guide. But um, can guys reach out and get in
1: touch with you as well? 100%. Yeah, I'd love if anyone coming over got in touch with me. Uh, Really love taking spearing photos as well these days. So if you Second. check out my um, Instagram, it's troppy underscore the underscore local, troppy the local. And if you want to come over and take a few fun snaps and get out for a spear, I'd love to meet you.
0: Yeah, sweet, man. Awesome. Hey, bloody good chat today. We went off the rails in terms of not following the normal format of the show. But uh, I just wanted to have a good yarn with you based purely upon having a good look at that book that you wrote. And, uh, mate, you did not disappoint. I've had a fantastic chat with you.
1: Great, awesome to meet you Shrek and I look forward to watching more Noobs Bureau podcasts very soon <laughs> All good man, well I'll, um,
0: I'll catch you on the flip side we'll have to get you on again some stage in the future I've got some sustainability ideas and uh, because you're a learned man you might be someone I'll add to the list to um, get a perspective from
1: Yeah, we'd love to have another chat sometime soon Shrek
0: Cool, cheers Choppy Choppy, what a bloke champion exmouth i want to go spare in there that sounds like a phenomenal place just the sheer sort of biodiversity the amazing ocean currents they have and the the richness of life and that pristine reef out there sounds like something well worth protecting so if you want to get involved with what Troppy was talking about there at the back end of the show head along to newspirit.com forward slash Troppy t-r-o-p-i and uh his book will be linked up in there as well for free and uh it's great information in there for anyone that's in their sort of their first year of spearing there's a whole bunch of good stuff in there and uh just a handy little guide and uh hats off to them for bloody making it i know how much works involved so awesome stuff so hey next week we are off to talk about diving alone and it's going to be okay well there's no other word for it it's going to be a shit fight Uh, it's a controversial episode but it's all about diving alone Uh, because i've had some sincere listener questions and i feel like i need to be transparent about my own practices but also be honest about a few things and so i'm going to be working on that over the next week or two but Please tune in. Um, thanks to all the Patreons powering the Noob Patreon.com forward slash Noob You can support the show on an episode by episode basis. And all that money is used to fund trips where well, at least I'm coming out to visit you and do some live interviews in your area and hopefully hook up and go spearfishing with you. So hey, thanks for listening to the show. Reviews are awesome as well. Love ya. Today I've got a sweet offer for you. To go with this free episode of the Noob podcast got access to some free courses how cool is that go to noobsparrow.com forward slash ted now ted hardy from Immersion freediving a frequent guest on the noobspero podcast has got several free courses available at noobspero.com forward slash ted check it out freediving safety there's a full video course about how to avoid shallow water blackout how to be a good buddy all the fundamentals of just being a good safe spiro and it's all free check it out noobspero.com forward slash ted there's another one in there as well about how to take a 20 to 30% bigger breath, which will give you more fuel, more time on the bottom, and uh, make you a more effective Spirit. There's also a whole lot of other courses there as well. Check them out, get a 15% discount, newspiritcom forward slash Now I don't know about you, but I love new gear. And spearfishing.com.au have got a huge range. Mad flat shipping rate, especially in Australia. And if you use the code NOOBSPERO, you not only support us, but you get $20 off every purchase over $200. That's right, pump in the code NOOBSPERO at checkout, N O O B S P E A R O, at spearfishing.com.au, and you will save 20 bucks on every purchase over $200. No brainer. Thanks, Adreno.